statement which is made in the Gemara. It's found in the Sechet Megillah on page 19. In the Mishnah, there's a query, a question as to where the Megillah's reading should begin from. And the Megillah, we have different suggestions that are made. Where, where do you read the Megillah from? Rabbi Yehuda says, from Ish Yehudi. Rabbi Yossi says, from Achar Advarim Ha'ela. And then, at some point, the Gemara picks up the narrative. And the Gemara says, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai Omer, the author of the Zohar, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai says, Mi from this night, that, that night, this what we're going to learn about today. And the Gemara goes on to explain the different opinions. He says, the one who says, from... The one who says from uh, Ish Yehudi, pardon me, but, um, the, if you say you have to read the whole Megillah, then it's Tokfesh Lachashverish. You start off with the power, the might of Achashverish. If you say from Ish Yehudi, you start off with the power and the force of charisma of Mordechai. And if you say it's from Hadvarim Ha'ila, Achar Hadvarim Ha'ila, Gidal HaMelech, so then it's about the power of Haman. Manda Amra However, the opinion that says, that it happens, maybe Laila Ahu, ah, this he says, is Tokfashonness. In other words, what we're about to read now, we're, we're about to study now, the Talmud calls Tokfashonness. This is the thrust, the power of the miracle of Purim. It must be really exciting, because this is the power of the miracle. In fact, the Maharil, the Biyakov Mulin, who is the forerunner of Shulchan Aruch for Ashkenazim, and his ruling is brought in the Magen of Ram, in Eirachaim Simen Tafresh Tzadik. So this, in this uh, laws of Purim, he says, when you come to the words, Hahu, the reader has to raise his voice. And you'll notice in Shul, when it comes to the sixth chapter, Hahu, in a very loud voice, the reader wakes everybody up quickly. Right? There's something major going on here. So the obvious question is, what, what happened? King couldn't sleep. On that night, somebody couldn't sleep. And in as much as ultimately this causes a whole series of events, everything in the Megillah causes a series of events. Everything in the Megillah happens, just so happens to happen exactly when it happens, which is the whole story of Purim. The story of Purim is about all about Hashgach Pratis, it's about timing, and that's why the Mishnah says, HaKeris HaMegillah Mafreya, if you read the Megillah out of order, you don't fulfill the mitzvah, you miss the whole point. The only way to read the Megillah is in order, in order to recognize the ever-present hand of Hashem. And you start to connect the dots, and a stunning picture emerges, and you see, wow, this is like a montage that's magnificent. But you only see that when you put all the details together. No detail in and of itself is actually particularly miraculous. So talkfaishalness would make you think that there's something extraordinary that's about to happen now. And then you open your Megillah and we can learn the sixth chapter and it says, Balaila who? Balaila on that night? The king couldn't sleep. Big deal. So so on this night, uh, some point out what's Laila Hahu? What's that night? The night in between the two feasts. There was a feast. And there was a feast. And this is the night in between. The feasts were both on afternoons. And then the first feast ends and Haman goes home, happy until he sees Mardachai, as learned yesterday. He's a, a really sick puppy. 
he reaches the zenith of his success in his career. He's finally satisfied. He smiles for the first time in his life, but not for long. As soon as he sees Mordechai, all of it is spoiled. And he's coming to kill Mordechai. That's what this is all about. That's what's going on tonight. He's plotting the end of Mordechai, so huh, Haman can finally feel good about himself again. And in this night, that's in between these two major events, Achashverosh couldn't sleep. Really and truly, big deal. It doesn't sound like something that exciting. An emphasis on Balayla Hahu, you could simply say Balayla. And at night, the king couldn't sleep. What's the Balayla Hahu on that night? So in order to properly appreciate and understand what's going on here, I think that it's important for us to take a look at the Midrashic teachings on the word Balaylahu. Let's forget about the king who couldn't sleep, the royal insomnia. Let's forget about that for a moment. There's two opinions, whether he was an insomniac altogether, but here he thought this was one that he was planning to sleep, or he had never experienced insomnia before. But before we get to the insomnia, there's a, a Balaylahu. What night was this? The Targum, which most believe is the Targum Yerushalmi. It doesn't seem like Yenis ben Azil, and it's definitely not Unculus. The Targum is rather unusually long here. It has a lot of commentary. And the Targum says, it was on this very night that the Jewish people were saved from Mitzrayim. If you'll remember, a number of classes ago, we introduced two rabbinic teachings about when Haman was hung, on the first day of Pesach or on the second day of Pesach. The Targum seems to follow the opinion that that all took place on the first day of Pesach. And because of that, what would Belayla'ahu be? That was the Seder night. We'll soon talk about the other opinion, and that actually lines up too. But the Targum seems to talk about that, and it says, Belayla'ahu, Belayla'ahu, Nefak Purkanoli Yehudoi. This is when miracles happen for the Jewish people. And so the Targum begins to recount miracles from the very beginning of our history. What's the first challenge that the Jewish people experienced or our ancestors experienced on the night of Pesach that resulted in a miraculous deliverance? You're all drawing a blank here. Sarah Imenu, a mother Sarah was abducted by a king whose name was Avimelech. She was abducted on the first day of Pesach, of Pesach. On the night of Pesach, miracles happened for Sarimena and she was saved. On the morning of Pesach, she was released from her incarceration, which presaged the Geula, the redemption of the Jewish people. So the Targum says, This is when Sarah spoke to the household of Avimelech. And it's interesting because there's another Medrash that talks about Esther reigning over 127 provinces in the 127 years that Sarimenu lived. So there's a connection between Esther and Sarimenu. But once again here, we're really entering now into the sweep of Jewish history, seeing how nothing is in isolation. The Medrash goes on to say, the Targum says, Bei Belelia, it was on this night, Iskatolo called Bukhra de Mitzray. The next major miracle happens on this night. All the Egyptian firstborns are struck dead. This is the night of the first Seder. On this night, great revelation and imagery was revealed to prophets. It was on this night that Avraham Avinu had the 
Brisbane Absalom. Right? This is when God shows him the future. And apparently, and I didn't have time to fully research this, there are numerous great visions that took place on the first night of Pesach. So it's a night of vision and a night of prophecy. And so the Targum says, on this night that had such a rich history of deliverance and miracles, on this night, everybody was sleepless in Shushan. It's actually not just the king. So there was mass sleeplessness going on, and ultimately, it was on this night that here the Targum references something which we read in the Gemara, as well as in the Yalkut Shemoni, the teaching of Rabbi Tanchuma, who says, on that night the king the sleep was disturbed, says Rabbi Tanchuma, the slumber of God, which we'll soon talk about what that means, how does God slumber. But this is, ultimately, there's this, so to speak, slumber from God. The Targum goes on to say that this is the idea that in Galut, Galut is metaphorized as sleep for God, and that's the meaning of what David HaMelech says in Tehillim, Uda Lamatish Nashem, awake, why do you sleep, God? So what, why is there this Galut reality, and, and it seems as if God is sleeping, it seems as if he's indifferent to us. The Targum tells us, and I'm going to soon fill it in with the Yalka Chumani, which gives us all the details, that in this night, Mardukai did not sleep. He says, on this night, Mardukai was accused by all the Jews as being the source of trouble. They came to him and they said, you know, if you had not, ba if you had not been so insolent to Haman, if you hadn't stood your ground, none of this ever would have happened. So Mardukai couldn't sleep. And Mardukai said to them, did you not notice that he was wearing clothing that was emblazoned with the symbols of idolatry on the front and on the back? Do you not know that it's written that somebody who bows to an idol forfeits life? What did you want me to do? So this was the politics. A lot of politics can go on here tonight. There was politics in Mordechai. Not all the Jewish people were behaving so nicely yet. Many had aroused to tshuva, and many were still giving Mordechai a hard time. We will soon see who the loyalists were, who saved the day. Hint, it was not the adults. On this night, on this night, Haman could not sleep. Haman was preparing his gallows. On this night, says the Targum, Esther did not sleep. She was preparing the feast. And on this night, Achashverosh did not sleep. He was roused from on high. So this is really a night in which there is sleeplessness in Shushan. But lest you think it's only in Shushan, the Targum goes on to tell us, The fathers, the patriarchs, sleeping in Hebron were awakened by the angels, by Malach Machol. Machol, who was the defender of Israel. And so the angels were awakened. Michael. 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 So, and, and the angels were awakened. And we'll soon see, the Yalkut Shimoni goes on with more details. The Yalkut Shimoni tells us, not only the angels were awakened, but in fact, Moshe and Aaron were awakened. And everybody was awake. Everybody was awake. It says some of the Jewish people were weeping and crying and begging and cajoling. Nobody's sleeping. In heaven, on earth, in Gan Eden, in the celestial realms, everybody woke up tonight. So maybe this helps us now start to appreciate the meaning of 
There is a major shakeup on heaven and earth. I will come back to that in a moment. The Medrashak Shimoni goes on to describe how Ahasuerush has awakened that these, uh, the angel whose job is sleep, the angel of sleep, was uh, sent to wake up Ahasuerush. And the story goes, quote, he threw him onto the ground 365 times, screaming at him, you ingrate, you ingrate, you ingrate, until he finally woke up and he says, I'm an ingrate, I'm an ingrate. <laughs> Who has done good to me? Who did not take care of? And we'll come back to all of this later. Okay. So this is a little bit of background. And from here, I want to take you to Rashi now. This is all just, I, sa I said this all me for purposes of background. We will come back to some of this a little bit later. Let's take a look in Rashi. Rashi says, On this night, the king's sleep was disturbed. So Rashi's first comment is, Nes haya. A miracle. It's a miracle that a man couldn't sleep. It's a miracle. Is it a miracle that Ahasuerus killed his own wife? Is it a miracle that Mordechai happened to overhear big son of Seresh and conveyed the information to Esther, who conveyed the information to Ahasuerus, and it got recorded. Is that a miracle? It doesn't say that. Is it a miracle that Esther finally had the gumption and courage to go and see Ahasuerus and risk her life, and that when she came, Ahasuerus wanted to kill her, and that the scepter is extended miraculously? Rashi doesn't say it's a miracle. We don't talk about a miracle. But this Persian king couldn't sleep. Rashi says, Nesoya. It's a miracle. A miracle. Whoever heard of a king who doesn't sleep? And then Rashi says, But there are others that say, it's not so miraculous. It fits into the rest of the story of Purim. It melts right into the background. It's only natural Ahasuerus couldn't sleep. Why can't he sleep? He just had a full meal. He drank a lot of wine. He must have been exhausted. Why couldn't he sleep? So Rashi quotes the Gemara, and he says, that in Sechet Megillah on page 15b, it's brought down that he began to ruminate on the circumstances. He thought about what happened. He said, it's very strange what happened over here. Esther invited just Haman. Hmm. Maybe, maybe Esther is plotting against me. Maybe they're plotting to kill me. Maybe Esther is in love with Haman. Or maybe Haman's in love with Esther. And maybe now they're going to depose me. And that's the reason after all, what could Esther want that the prime minister or the vizara is needed? What, what does he have that, I'm the king. Why did Esther call me? And so he began to, in his mind, review the day's events. And he said, something's not adding up. Something doesn't make sense here. There's got to be something more going on. And then, just to add fat to the fire, a little miracle happened. The little miracle happened was that Rabbi Yeshua Bar-Eloi says, all that night, and this is again in Yalkut Shimoni in more detail, but also in the Gemara, it says, all that night, Ahasuerus kept seeing Haman come against him. With a drawn sword. He's tearing off his ermine, his robes. And he's knocking the crown off his head. And he's trying to kill him. And he keeps having this recurring nightmare. And then he doesn't even know if it's a nightmare or, or if it's a vision. And then he hears Haman. Haman's coming. So this is his nightmare. This is what he's thinking. And so Rashi says, that's not so miraculous. That actually makes perfect sense. 
So what I want to ask you today is, isn't that strange that Rashi starts off by making this blanket statement, Neshaya, it was a miracle that the king couldn't sleep, and then gives you a perfectly logical explanation for why the king couldn't sleep? Isn't that strange? Like Rashi seems to be playing both sides. And why is that necessary? When we take a look at Ibn Ezra, in my humble opinion, we have the same thing that happens. Ibn Ezra says, Balailahu, on that night, Bidrashi says, in the homiletics of Torah, in the areas of Torah where things are expounded, like Medrash. Over there it says, Shnas Malka Shalalim. This refers to God. So obviously the verse is literal. Yes, there was a man in Bachashverosh, a Persian king who couldn't sleep, but this actually refers to God who couldn't sleep. And when God couldn't sleep, he made sure Ahasuerus couldn't sleep. That sounds like a miracle. Sounds like similar to Rashi's approach. The first approach is, only he is explaining to you the mechanics of the miracle. God didn't sleep. If God didn't sleep, says Ibn Ezra, he made things happen. Ahasuerus started to remember and think, and he wants to hear the records and the chronicles read. And as such... The earthly king doesn't sleep. Then, Ibn Ezra says, as if, as if Ibn Ezra puts it a little differently. Ibn Ezra doesn't focus so much on the lack of sleep, but rather on the emphasis on wanting to hear the chronicles read. Because that's the next thing he says. If you, let's read the verse. We didn't read the verse in entirety yet. He said, to bring his book of memories, the chronicles, Divre Hayamim, where things are recorded, where the history of the country is recorded, of his kingdom, the and they should be read before the king. So Rashi doesn't get into that. We're going to get to that in a moment. That's the second Rashi. Ibn Ezra just has all of his commentary in the words Balailahu. And he says, Yesh Aimrim, those who say that the reason that he brought the chronicles to be read is because it's more fun than counting sheep. I mean he doesn't say that, but he says, he says, um, It's enjoyable. He wanted to hear the words, hear the stories. It's like bedtime stories. This has nothing to do with anything, but a little boy was once asked his bubby to read him a bedtime story. So she started reading, Once Upon a Time. And the little boy said, Bubby, do all fairy tales begin with Once Upon a Time? And Bubby said, No. Some fairy tales begin with if I'm elected, I will. <laughs> right. Okay, that has nothing to do with anything. So, except that we're going to talk about politics today because there is a political slant to all of this. Or, uh, this is really poli-sci. This is political science at its best, as you'll see in a moment. So, Ahasuerus wanted to hear the story. So, read, read me the stories. Keep me entertained. Bedtime stories. Like a baby. Want to hear bedtime stories. And because... Couldn't fall asleep. He figured if you read me a story, I'll fall asleep. It really sounds like, like your children or grandchildren. But then, Ibn Ezra says something else. There are those who say that the reason he couldn't sleep is because he began to think to himself, maybe something is amiss. Something is wrong in my kingdom. Maybe I've behaved inappropriately. Maybe I've wronged somebody. Maybe, maybe I have to write something from the past. I better hear. Let me take a listen what's gone on, and then I'll know what has to be fixed. So Ibn Ezra starts off by talking about God waking up, causing reasons, 
And then he starts giving us logical explanations for why he wanted the Chronicles read. Both Rashi does this and Ibn Ezra. It's really interesting. They start, they start off on one path. They start off in, in, in miracle lane and then somehow like shift into a different, uh, they stick shift into a different approach. You take a look in Rashi. Lahavi Sefer Azachrenis. He says, this is the way of royalty. When their sleep eludes them, when they have royal insomnia, they say to those to read them bedtime stories. They give them parables, essentially fairy tales, until the sleep returns. So that sounds, sounds weird. Ashraj can't sleep. Fairy tales are being read. It's like, what, what's going on here? Then Rashi says, Rabbi Seinu Amru, no, 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 it's not so weird. It's not just about sleep. It's not just about the sleep that was miraculously robbed from him. What was really going on here is because he began to evaluate the situation of Mordechai, of Haman and Esther. He said, Haman and Esther, what do Haman and Esther have? Maybe they're getting together against me. Something is wrong over here. He says, Rashi quotes the Gemara, as well as the Medrash. He says, if they're plotting against me, somebody's got to know. It's not possible they should plot against me and nobody knows. So if somebody knows, why isn't somebody telling me? I know if they're plotting against me, I know why they're plotting, because they have what to gain. But if somebody else knows about it, he or she has nothing to gain, why wouldn't they tell me? So Achashverosh began to think, I bet you there's somebody I owe. I bet you there's somebody I didn't take care of. And that's why they're repaying me. That's why they're not telling me when my life's in danger. So he said, hmm, maybe somebody did me a favor. Maybe somebody is not telling me for a good reason. So he says, bring those chronicles. Let's hear what those chronicles have to say. And again, we talk about something which on the surface is, can't sleep, say one's fairy tales. And then we have this very logical and rational explanation to what's going on here. So I think that maybe the fact that we have a new chapter that begins with a lack of sleep begs a question in and of itself. Since, as we mentioned, this is the night in between the two parties, we're really in the thick of the narrative. So either the narrative should begin with Haman coming in the morning, the, the, maybe the parak should have ended. And Haman says, It's like, there's something, there's something different. Somehow this became a narrative. Somehow this became... The night, the in-between night is not an in-between night. It's a the night. There's something very big going on here. And it doesn't just say the king couldn't sleep. Nadada. There seems to be a, a, a greater force, something that disturbs his sleep. So I think on a level of pshuto shomikra, on a literal level, if you just read the verse, the context, the syntax here, there, there's, there's a part of this verse that screams for elucidation. There's something about the story now that doesn't make sense. At least the way it's being told doesn't make sense. So Rashi says, Nesoya. There's a reason for that. There's a reason that the Megillah is written in this odd fashion where we zero in on a seemingly insignificant detail and that becomes a major focus. And that's because this is, there's a major miraculous moment here. Nesoya. But on the other hand, there is no open miracle in the Megillah. All of the Megillah doesn't even have Hashem's name, as we discussed many, many classes ago. So if all of the Megillah doesn't have Hashem's name, and there is no overt and obvious miracle, 
why wasn't he sleeping? Like, why did this event happen? So therefore, Rashi gives us a subtext, another interpretation, another narrative, where this could be understood within the frame of some kind of normal happening. Something is wrong. I had the first meal. Why did Esther need there? You know, the Vilna Goan puts it very interestingly. He notes that Achashverosh was thinking to himself the following. He said, something is not adding up here. Esther must want something really big. She's got to want something really, like, really big because she risked her life. Achashverosh was no fool. I mean, maybe he was a fool, but he, he knew that he could have killed her. He actually knew he was planning to kill her. And he himself was shocked when his hand lurched forward and he's extended the scepter. And then, of course, he became this sweet, nice husband again. Oh, yes, honey, what would you like? I'll give you half the kingdom. I was going to kill you a second ago, but now that I didn't kill you, I'll give you half the kingdom. So Ahasuerus knows this. He says, Esther risked her life. And, and why did she do this? There's got to be something going on here. And, and the, the Vilna Gohan is a very unusual suggestion here. He says that in addition, I suppose, to the notion that maybe Haman and Esther are plotting and they have something against Ahasuerus, he says maybe he started to think like this. Esther clearly wants something very big. It's so big, she needs Haman in on it. As if, as if I can't do this myself. As if everybody's got to be in on this. Who could Esther be asking for? She's a queen. She has everything she could possibly want. She must be asking a favor for somebody. Haman began, Achishverosh began to think, hmm, who could she be asking for? I said it must be Mordechai, because he knew that Mordechai raised her. He didn't know she was Jewish, but he knew Mordechai raised her. He said, probably Esther wants to do a favor for Mordechai. She said, gee, I wonder what he wants, she wants about Mordechai. And just to show you how clueless he sometimes was, he said, I bet you Haman's in with Mordechai too. <laughs> He's clearly clueless. He said, if they want something from Mordechai, Mordechai, hmm, she must have a pretext. Can't just ask for something. Mordechai must have done something for me. He said, bring out those books. Let's read the Chronicles. Let's. So Achashverosh, the ever wily monarch, thinks, okay, here's how I'm going to tamp it down. I'm going to do some favor for Mordechai today before the party. So when Esther says she wants to do something for Mordechai, or she has some kind of brownie point saved up and Mordechai has earned, Esther, relax, I took care of him this morning. Funny you should say that. That's, that's a Vilna Gohan suggestion, a very creative, different kind of suggestion. So he says, he says, I'll do something big for him. I'll do something big. And Achashverosh kind of sews all the pieces together when he hears the story and in the Chronicles being read, oh, he says, look at that. What's going on here is that Mordechai did do something. I have it. I'll do something amazing for Mordechai, something he never could have imagined before. And then when Esther will ask a favor, I'll say, take care of it already. I treated him like a king. So, so this is, this is I, I think, the, the, the narrative, the subtext. And the same thing, Ibn Ezra does the same thing. He says, Balailahu, there's a big deal of Balailahu on that night. Balailahu has to mean that there was something major going on here. And therefore, the Ibn Ezra quotes the Medrash and the Targum and the, and the Yaakut Shemani. And he says, God woke up. It wasn't just Achashverosh waking up. Okay, but it has to fit. The narrative of the, of the Megillah has to fit some kind of cadence that looks all natural, in which God's presence is concealed, in which no miracle is overtly identified. No problem, Ibn Ezra says. He needed the fairy tales read. Had indigestion. <laughs> Something was bothering him. And because he had indigestion, it was perfectly natural to have the Chronicles read. So there's this book that somebody published re recently, which casts the entire Megillah in, like a, in, a, in a political, political science. Somebody just, Bashkoch, brought this. 
sent yesterday. He sent, he sent, sent me like some excerpts on this book. So the guy's onto something. Here's his suggestion. Achashverosh, he th- thinks, this is in the terms of modern political science. Achashverosh is thinking, Haman and Esther have it together. Haman is very powerful. In fact, Haman is so powerful now that it looks like I can't do anything without Haman. He starts to think, maybe Haman is too powerful. I need a balance of power. I trusted this guy too much. So Haman, whose fortunes were rising and rising and rising, and Ahasuerus trusts him implicitly, and he allows him permission to destroy the entire Jewish nation, gives him free reign, so to speak, carte blanche, here's my ring. Do as you please, do as you will, do as you must. And then Ahasuerus starts thinking, hmm, maybe Haman's a little too powerful. Maybe he needs to be reined in. Maybe I need to raise another minister to serve as a counterweight. Because Ahasuerus says to himself, ultimately, my royalty or monarchy, my, my political power is in that I'm the one who decides who makes those decisions. I'm not involved in the nitty-gritty. But if Haman doesn't need me anymore, if Haman has already surpassed me because now he's comfortable, I don't, I'm no longer relevant. Maybe Haman's going to get rid of me now. And so Ahasuerus immediately begins to think about how to minimize Haman. How miraculous is that? Haman comes that night because he can't sleep either. So he comes in the middle of the night and he is like a runaway helium balloon. He keeps going higher and higher. His fortunes are rising. He's, the whole kingdom knows about Haman. He is the one who is charting the course of the Persian Empire. The queen understands that she can't get anything done in this country without him. And now he's going to get rid of his arch enemy. And he walks in on that trajectory. But what he does know is Ahasuerus has left that train and he's riding in a different direction now. Ahasuerus is now riding in the direction of, I need to bring this guy down. I need to humble that Haman a little because he is out of control. It's a, it's a, it's a political chess game. But the miracle is how Haman and Ahasuerus all of a sudden switch tracks. They're on the same page. They're drinking together. They're best buddies. Ahasuerus is grateful and appreciates who Haman is and what Haman has done for him. And suddenly he says, I raised that wretch and now he's going to stab me in the back? So when he comes and makes his request, not only is his request not going to be fulfilled, that enrages Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus knows exactly what he's asking for. Ahasuerus says, so what would we do for somebody that the king wants to give glory and honor? And Haman is thinking, oh yes, me of course he's going to give me because (laughs) I am the be-all and end-all. But actually, Ahasuerus posed that question with the exact opposite intention. And he wanted Haman to make the choice. He said, you are going to be the vehicle of your own humbling. And he thinks to himself, who is the nemesis of Haman? Mordechai. He's coming to get Mordechai hung. And in fact, the exact opposite is going to unfold. You see how all this mixes together to something marvelous is about to unfold over here. And that's the Balai Lahu. And it seems to me that Rashi felt compelled to share both narratives with us at the same time. First of all, the Gemara says. The Gemara calls it Takvashul Nes. So you can't ignore that. And the fact that the, the, the chapter begins where it begins, the way it begins, the Nadado, which seems to indicate an external force, cannot simply be taken for granted. Rashi feels that if he's go, just going to explain this as another night in Persia or some royal insomnia, that he's doing us a disservice. He didn't give us the full story. 
But at the same time, if he doesn't give us some kind of logical explanation, then the Megillah is not a Megillah. It's got to make sense. You've got to have the ability not to see the hand of Hashem. So he says, Nesoya, it was a miracle. And here's the logical explanation of how the miracle happened. In other words, the miracle has a, so to speak, logic to it. When I was studying this, I was reminded that during the Gulf War, the Rebbe predicted that nothing would happen. Surely you all remember that there was doomsday scenario. People were talking about scuds that were tipped with horrible chemical weapons. And, and like Saddam Hussein, Yamach Shemo was boasting that he was going to destroy Israel. 39 scuds. It was two scuds that fell in Saudi Arabia. They claimed hundreds of lives. These were scuds that were launched into populated, densely populated urban areas. There was not a single fatality. It is probably one of the greatest miracles of modern time. And the Rebbe, the Rebbe said nothing was going to happen. And I'll tell you the truth. Those scuds started falling. I had like a crisis of faith, but the Rebbe said nothing's going to happen. And I wasn't the only bozo. There were some people who wrote a letter to the Rebbe. What now? And the Rebbe said, everything I said stands. I said nothing would happen, nothing's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Nothing did. Mm-hmm. Several months later, the Rebbe issued a pastoral letter. And in this letter, the Rebbe writes that the great miracles have happened to the Jewish people. And it behooves us to thank Hashem and to recognize His hand and to know that we lived through extraordinary events. And the Rebbe notes in the letter that oftentimes those who are closer to the epicenter of activity, those in the know, are not so impressed. And the Rebbe said here, the exact opposite is true. Those who are in the know know far more how miraculous this event was. I remember as a boy reading this. I was a teenager, my early 20s. And then, and then the story comes out a few months later. One of the scuds succeeded in landing a direct hit on the main gas line of Tel Aviv, which had the potential of literally blowing up the whole city. The whole city could have been aflame. And the fatalities that this could have caused are even too frightening to think about. So an amazing thing happened. There was a section of the gas line that had been shut off for repairs. One section of the gas. And that was exactly where the scud landed. There was a one section that had been diverted with a temporary diversion that, to put a, a, you know, kind of some kind of tubing or piping to temporarily divert the gas. But everything is connected. And the scud hit exactly. It's, it's, it's a miracle. It's unbelievable. But of course, there are plenty of skeptics who say, yeah, yeah, whatever. The IDF was great. No, he had bad luck. He was just a bozo. So that, oh, yeah, do you remember that he sent two at Riyadh and knocked down a whole barrack of Marines? And, and Well, you know, stuff happens. So there's still the ability to deny the presence of Hashem. But you really can't. I mean, if you want to be honest with yourself, you want to really look deeply into things. So you say, well, stuff happened. Achashverosh had indigestion. Maybe he drank too much wine. Eh, probably not because he was used to doing this. He knew how to do this. He knew how to pace himself. It's not, it's not a first rodeo, as they say. Well, maybe Achashverosh uh, was a little worried because Mordechai and Esther, uh, pardon me, Esther and Haman were together. Incidentally, the Mamloas quotes a Medrash saying that Esther had intended for this to happen. You'll remember this. We talked about this a few classes ago. Esther's intention was to rouse the suspicion of Ahasuerus so that he would get unhappy with Haman. She would weaken his position. And Esther, 
also knew that it might mean she'd be killed, because Ahasuerus is a lunatic. He killed his last wife. He, she knew there was a possibility that she and Haman would be hung. And she was prepared to make the sacrifice. That's Esther. She said, to save my people, to get rid of Haman, I'm prepared to die. I'll play this game. And it works like a charm. But guess what? The best laid plans don't always work exactly as you hoped them to. And just because Esther hoped that it would be that way, didn't mean it was going to happen that way. And Haman had got through many obstacles in order to reach the zenith of his power where he was. He's a very powerful, frightening man. And so we have this rationale that goes along with it and why he chose to have the Book of Chronicles read. Why, of all things, did he have the Book of Chronicles? Wow. But yeah, the Book of Chronicles. And they should be read. Okay, so Ibn Ezra gives us this narrative and Rashi follows a logical narrative. This is what was typically done. This is how, this is the treatment for royal insomnia. Parables, metaphors, fairy tales, and chronicles. So they read the chronicles. But actually it was a great miracle. And the Medrash tells us something else quite remarkable. It says, They'll be read before the king. And then you look in Pasuk Beis, verse 2, it says, They found it was written, that Mordechai had told the plot of Big Son and Seresh, two ministers, officers of the king, the guardians, and they, that they actually wanted to kill Ahasuerus. And Mordechai, the king says, What was done for Mordechai? And they say, eh, nothing. Nothing. Nothing was done. Something must be done. And that's how the story, now, Ahasuerus says, now I got it. This is the guy I have to do something good for. And who comes at that moment? Haman is here. Just at the right moment. So there's a, an incredible medrash about what happened when they started. It says that they'll bring the book of Chronicles, and the book of Chronicles will be read. It'll, more accurately, it will read itself. So the medrash tells us that Haman's sons were responsible for the Chronicles. And Haman had a son named Shimshai. And Shimshai was the guy who was supposed to read the Chronicles. And Shimshai actually had written down the Chronicles, as he was told, and then he went and erased them. So a Malach came and rewrote it. And then he was shocked to find it written what he had erased. So he turned the page. And all of a sudden it jumped from one page to the next page. And then he turned the page back. And it jumped back to the other page. And there was a whole series of miracles was happening. But David Feinstein asks, I thought there's no miracles here. I thought this is the story of Purim. I thought that... And he answers, it's so logical, he says. Who knew about that? Who could have known? Shimshi. Or Shimshai. Just Haman's son. Somebody on the inside knew. How did the people outside look at it? There were chronicles. The chronicles were written. And the chronicles were written. And that's how it came. In other words, there's this notion that the miracles that Hashem causes to happen are not, uh, 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 were not seen in an open and revealed state. They were not appreciated by the masses. And people could easily deny the presence of Hashem. It's a nice story. He happened to have indigestion. He happened to have insomnia. He happened to have the, the chronicles read. That's what any good king would do. And he happened to hear about Mordechai. And that fed right into the narrative and all the nightmares he was having. So he said, oh, that Haman's getting too powerful. I need to do something. Or maybe Esther wants to ask for Mordechai, the various logical explanations. So therefore, he decided to reward Mordechai and something nice would happen. So, so this, this moment where uh, this is really the, the, the talk fish on Ness, because you know how we describe Purim? 
in the Megillah. How, how is the, the holiday of Purim described as? It's called Vinahapechu. Everything is inside out, turned upside down. The real Vinahapoch starts right here. Because up until this point, Haman is skyrocketing. And Mordechai is sinking. Mordechai's own people that night come to him. And they say to him, you made all the trouble. His own people. The, Jew, the Jews didn't appreciate Mordechai. And that very night, everything gets reversed. Now, it, it takes time till everything gets reversed fully. Haman is hung the next morning. And then there's a series of events that happen. And on the 23rd day of Sivan, a letter is sent out until the next year Purim, until 11 months later when everything is finished. But the beginning of the reversal of the topsy-turvy, of the inside out, this is the turning point. This is the turning point of the story of Purim. And that's why this is where the miracle is. This is where we identify the miraculous moment. Here's where everything switched. The beginning of everything. This is like the kind of the... the uh, the linchpin. This is where it turns. Now, as I mentioned, there are opinions that the second night of Pesach is when this occurs, not on the first night. So, so here, Reb David Feinstein gives a very interesting explanation. He says, it's true that this is not the Leil Shimurim, according to the other opinion. This is not the night that God has guarded and this is not the night that Sari Menu was saved and the night that the firstborns were struck down. This is not the night of, of, of the miracles and the promises. It's true. But it's still Pesach outside of Israel. And it was a Seder night outside of Israel. And the point is that Golos, or exile, epitomizes God's concealment. And this idea of God's concealment is what requires a second day of Yom Tov. If you want to talk about it in, in a technical way, it takes us more time and greater effort, like the Kabbalists say, to download the energy of Yom Tov outside of Israel. We need two seders. We need two days of Yom Tov. So this represents the ultimate notion, notion of the concept of, of, of Golos. And in the midst of that Golos, Balai Lahu, in that night, which this will serve, we'll, we'll get there in a minute, the David mentions, and I, I presume he has a source for this, that there's a Pasuk in Yehoshua that says, Vayishbos hamon mimochras. The manna stopped falling on the second day of Pesach. That's when the manna stopped. So he says, that can also mean Vayishbos hamon. If you vowelize it differently, hamon ceased. Hamon came to an end. Incidentally, and again we talked about this in the previous class, there's a, there's a discussion in Shulchan Aruch, which we observe, and we actually observe the second day of Pesach. It's customary in many communities to sing some Purim songs at the table, but to do something different at the table to remember that this is the day that Haman was killed and the reversal of our fortunes began in this day. So now we have somewhat of an appreciation of this Balailahu. I want to share with you a remarkable medrash that's brought down in vivid, colorful detail by the Mi'amloas. And then I want to share with you some extraordinary insights from the Rebbe about this Balailahu. The Medrash says nobody could sleep, going back to sleepless in Sushan, right? Nobody's sleeping. Esther's in the kitchen, Achashverosh is going to get woken up, Haman is out there in the carpentry uh, building his gallows, Mordechai is being assaulted by, all, by his fellow Jews, and he's in the middle of praying and mourning. The Avasar are waking. Everybody's up. 
says Haman couldn't sleep. So Haman decided to pay a visit to his arch enemy, Mordechai. The Medrash says Haman came. Where was Mordechai that night? He was in Shul. In the Grand Synagogue of Shushan. Who was with Mordechai that night? Who, who did Mordechai gather for some comfort? Who were the children? The children. And Haman counts the children. He sees, he sees the children. They're really Hasidim. They follow Mordechai. He's wearing sackcloth, and they're wearing sackcloth. He's weeping. They weep with him. He counts the children, and he counts 22,000 children. He has them chained on the spot. He had his own little army. He radios for help. He has the children chained. And he says, quote, I will kill them first, and then I'll kill their leader. First let him see all his children slaughtered before his eyes, and then I'll hang him. The mothers heard this. The news spread like wildfire. The children had been fasting. This is the third day of, third day of the fast. They came and they brought food for the children. And uh, Yiddish Mama, what does she want? To bring a little comfort to her child. So they brought food to the children. And the children, they closed their books, their scrolls. They were studying with Mordechai. They hugged it close to the heart. And the Medrash says, quote, they swore by Mordechai. And they said, we will die fasting, but we will never leave Mordechai. Amazing. You know, when I, when I read this Medrash, I always think about how the, the Rebbe would spend time with children. I think, I'm, in my imagination, the only, the only Hasidic leader in history had children around him all the time. Do you know that from the 1980s onward, the, the Rebbe danced one hakafa with the children? Holding the hands of the children in a circle. From that time on, where the Rebbe's place in davening, all the children were always there. Everybody says children should be seen, not heard. All the children just daven. At the Fabrengen, we was to sit. I have vivid memories, sitting at the Rebbe's feet. The floor around the Rebbe was covered with children. I remember sitting under the table, seeing the Rebbe's feet. I was a child, I was stupid. I don't know. And I appreciate it. Sitting at like I'm a distant from you from the Rebbe. Sitting as a floor, as a child, looking up, seeing him on the side. And the Rebbe had rallies for children, spoke to children, spent so much time with children. It's remarkable. It's like this remarkable bond. And remember, the Rebbe didn't have his own children. The Rebbe and the Rebbe were not blessed with children. And to people not to have children, to love children like that. In my mind's eye, this is, this is I try to picture what it was like with Mordechai. And I see the Rebbe with the children. That's, did he have kids? No, the Rebbe didn't have Did Mordechai have children? Mordechai. I don't know. I don't, I don't remember reading of Mordechai's children. So I, I, don't, I don't think he did, but I, I don't know. So the children say, no, no, we're loyal to, to Mordechai. And the youth was always the kids running around. It was the youth. That, 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 you, like, that was a man in his 80s, almost 90 years old. It's always teenagers, children. The youth were always attracted to the Rebbe. Everybody was, but the youth especially. The Rebbe had a special bond with counterintuitive. Right? Mordechai is a parliamentarian head of Sanhedrin, Torah genius. You'd think people would have, eh, the children appreciated him. They said, we remain loyal to Mordechai. We'll die together with Mordechai. And they knew, where this, they knew where this was going. And they didn't care. And it says they began to weep and to pray. And two hours in, I don't know why that's what it says, but two hours into this, their prayers reached the heavens. And God says to the Malachim, 
I hear the bleeding of sheep. I hear the sounds of little goats. The Medr says that God wanted the Malachim to be Malamed Zchus, to mention the merits of the Jewish people. So the Malachim said, the Malachim said, these are not goats, these are not sheep, these are little holy sheep, these are little Jewish children who are going to be slaughtered like sheep. And they said, if the elders, if the majors sinned, what did the minors do? The children are innocent. And then another medrash, another version is that Moshe Rabbeinu himself steps up to the plate. And Moshe Rabbeinu says, Ein Eila These are not sheep, these are not goats. These are tzayin kadoshan. These are the holy sheep. This is Amcha Yisrael. These are the children who have no sin. And here they are crying bitterly for three days. And you're not listening to them. And at this point it says, Hashem's mercies were awakened. God wakes up. And when God wakes up, Achashverosh gets woken. When Achashverosh gets woken, he sends the Malach to rob him of his sleep, and that's when he shows him a vision of Haman coming at him with a sword, which could be explained in political science, of what he saw Haman as being too powerful. Haman as, maybe it's a metaphor, maybe it's literal, it's a dream. So Haman knocking his, knocking his crown off, tearing his robes off, his royal robes, and it translates into political science. He's out there to take away my power. He's too powerful, this guy. He needs to be cut down to size. You really see something this going on in the White House, by the way. The president constantly cutting people down to size. <laughs> he does this very well. And it's, it's about political balance, staying in control. And so, and so, the fortunes begin to reverse and from this point onward, the miracle starts to unfold. And who is it? It's the Yiddish Kindlach. Mm-hmm. Such, a, such a beautiful, touching measure, so poignant. So how was ultimately the children's prayers? And Mordechai understood it was with the children that everything would change. You know that the Rebbe, during, if you look at things that happened in the 70s, the rise of terrorism, every single time there was a precipitation by the Rebbe before of added activities for the children. The Rebbe introduces the 12 psukim, the 12 passages for children to memorize. The Rebbe starts this idea of children's rallies. Then the Rebbe encourages the army of Hashem, Tzivas Hashem. If you look at it, it's always before there was major events going on in Israel. It was almost as if the Rebbe was following Mardachai's textbook of what to do or in this circumstance situation, learning from the Medrash that by mobilizing the children, this is ultimately where the strength of the Jewish people comes from. Because at the end of the day, it's all in Hashem's hands. So we have to be, so to speak, good with Hashem. And even when the Jewish people are not in a good state, the children are innocent. So if the children are loyal, and if the children cry out, then that brings about a change. In one of the Rebbe Sichas, he points out that the words Balai Lohahu, on their own, the very same words that the Gemara calls Tokfa Shilnes, that the words Balailahu in and of themselves represent the greatest of concealment. What's the name of Elie Wiesel's first book? Night. Night. Mm-hmm. night. Because night represents darkness, confusion. Everything that is exile is metaphorized with night. So it's Balaila. It's darkness and concealment. God's presence is not revealed. And what is Hahu? So there's an interesting discussion in Torah literature 
about the word ze and the word hu, this or that. But this is another kind of this or that. Ze, this is when it's vivid, obvious, open, overt, clear. That is not so clear. It's shrouded, it's mysterious. That thing, what was that? That's the idea of hahu. So hu, it's in, in, in the language of, of the Talmud, ze is loshen noichach, it's what's right here, and hu is loshen nister, something. Who, who was that? What was that? So balayla hu, both words are organically linked to concealment, represent exile. And that means the Balailahu in the darkest hour, in the darkest moment, that's all of a sudden when everything turned around. What is the philosophical or mystical kind of reasoning behind this? How, how, how why did that work? So the Rebbe suggests that when we talk about light, so there's light as we know it, light and darkness. And when, when, there, when there's darkness, which is simply stated the absence of light, a little bit of light disposes a great deal of darkness. But that's when darkness does not have an independent reality, what we call in scientific terms today a black hole, negative matter. But when you have negative matter, even though nobody's actually ever seen negative matter because they wouldn't be able to come back and tell us about it, the, the nature of negative matter as theoretical science postulates is that it would swallow light. It would absorb light. It would absorb reality. It collapses reality. Nothing can exist in such darkness. That's not just absence of light. That's independent darkness. And when there's independent darkness, no light can illuminate it. So the Rebbe suggests that the darkness got so bad, it wasn't just a lack of the Jewish people being appreciated. It wasn't just that we weren't held in esteem. It was that we were slated for genocide. We were ultimately... We're good? Oh, now we know how to turn the lights on? Talk, speaking of darkness? <laughs> Over there. There's a button that says on, press on. It's the, it's the second... Uh, so, so this notion of, of, of this darkness, this positive darkness, the second box, the one close to the wall, there you go. This notion of, of, of darkness requires no ordinary light. This has to have a light that's more powerful than darkness as it exists in and of itself, in dark matter. And that, says the Rebbe, that represents not, not ordinary divine light or godly light, but that represents the essence of divinity. And that is the deep Kabbalistic meaning of On that night, in the darkest of moments, that's when the light of God began to shine. So this is the kind of miracle that transcends nature and everything that goes with it. This is transcendence of all rhyme and reason. And the Rebbe explains this in very interesting terms. He says, being awake during the day means people are awake during the day. It's hard to sleep during the day. It's, it's hard to be up all night and sleep during the day. If we sleep during the day, we collapse. But the natural time to sleep is at night, and the natural time to be up is during the day. But the truth is that, that when, when we, we're awake during the day, it's not because we're awake, it's because it's daylight hours. There's an external force that, so to speak, wakes us. But when we're awake at night, why would that be? It's not the atmosphere. It's not the external reality. If we wake at night, why do we wake? 
because something inside, something inside. So the Rebbe says here we have the same kind of thing. Balailahu, this is not in a situation in which awakenedness is typical. Because remember, we're in the midst of Galut. And the people, as we read in the Medrash, are still screaming at Mordechai. You made all this happen. Instead of, we are guilty. We did the sins. We thought that it was the power of the queen that would save us instead of the power of Hashem. And that's why we made all these mistakes. We thought we had to curry favor with the government and with the monarch instead of remembering that our loyalty is to Hashem. No, they blame Mordechai. Things are still in the depths of, of exile. We're in, we're in the darkest hour. In the darkest hour. So you, know, you could argue, so uh, of course Hashem's oh, oh, mercy is provoked, is aroused, is wakened. So that's when we're doing what we're supposed to do. Because the Medrash says, what, does God sleep? God doesn't sleep. And what's the Medrash's answer? It's a proverbial concept. It means when we behave in a bad way, our sins called gods to be indifferent to us, which is metaphorized as sleep. But our sins hadn't changed yet. All the tshuva happens afterwards. The tshuva didn't happen. It was three days. It was just an awakening. The people were just starting to move. And not everybody was on board yet. And they were distraught, but didn't really return to Hashem fully. So it wasn't enough activity on our behalf to awaken or engender a transformation on high. And yet, in the midst of all of this, still not the Darshnah So the Rebbe suggests that this is what we call an unnatural spiritual reality. And like an un, it doesn't even fit according to the calculus of the spiritual equation. And he says this is the reason that the Maharil said you should raise your voice. Because when a person raises his voice, there's two things that happen. Number one, when I raise my voice, what am I doing? I'm calling forth more strength. I have to, I have to, I have to marshal more effort to raise my voice. I can speak audibly, normally. And if you want me to scream, it takes effort for me to scream. So that's from my perspective. And if I scream, what will the difference be if I raise my voice? If I'm speaking in a normal tone, who will hear? Whoever's within earshot. What if they're not within earshot? Then they won't hear. If I scream, what happens? Even those who wouldn't usually hear are going to hear. So the Rebbe suggests that these two ideas are also in what happens, just like you have these two ideas in raising the voice, there's two ideas within the notion of HaKadosh Baruch Hu's light. Number one, this is the deepest divine light. This is the deepest kind of revelation. Number two, it's such a profound revelation, it's going to reach the Jews who are on the outer fringes. The Jews who are on the outer layer of orbit who have fallen asleep, this will wake those Jews up too. And indeed, Purim did wake all the Yidden up. Purim and its subsequent miracles, even after Haman died, they were still in a very polarious situation and great danger that hung over them. And during that time, they remained loyal to Hashem. The Jewish people did tshuva. And as a result of this, we had the miracles of Purim. And we went back to Eretz Yisrael after. This ended the galut and heralded a new era that was, that was a redemptive and light-filled for us. And so, on one hand, the miracles are extraordinary. On the other hand, everything happens in natural state. Like the Medrash says, God sent the angel who is in charge of sleep, whatever that means, and he threw him on the ground 365 times, whatever that means. Maybe he tossed and turned 365 times and he screamed at him, you ingrate, you ingrate, you ingrate, you kvutayva. So he started to think, I am an ingrate. Who, who did something good for me? And that's when all his mind started working like that. So the Rebbe asks, one second, if it's talk for shalnes, so make a nes, make a miracle. Like there's nothing really miraculous for the king who couldn't sleep. It's just that one thing caused the next, like Rashi explains in the second explanation. It's just another part of the story. More things, more domino effect. One thing catalyzed the next. You don't really see a miracle there. 
So the Rebbe said you could understand this in part because, with a very interesting story that's told about the Alter Rebbe when he was incarcerated and the trumped-up charges of sedition against the Tsarist government because he was supporting Israel, which at that time was occupied by the Turkish, the Ottomans, but he was sending money to the Jewish people in Israel. But they interpreted it as the Alter Rebbe leading a rebellion against Russia, supporting Russia's archenemy, the Turks. And really, what was this about? It's about the teachings of Hasidus and the spiritual revolution that the Alter Rebbe had unleashed. So the story, and that's many discussions <laughs> that are beyond the purview of the next two minutes, but during that period, the Alter Rebbe was taken from his jail cell, which is in the Petropavlovsko Krepos, the Peter Paul Fortress, which is a small moat. It takes not even five minutes in a, in a little boat to go from one side to the other. And the Alter Rebbe was taken to the boat to what they call today the Winter Palace, where it was the Minister of Interior then, Interior Ministry of, of, of Tsarist Russia, and that's where he would be in, in, basically interviewed or interrogated by a tribunal. So at one point during the month of Kislev, the Altarebbe had not had a chance to make a blessing on the new moon yet. But in the Shulchan Aruch it says that you have to do it from a stationary place. Can't do it while the boat's, little boat's moving. So the Altarebbe asked the boat driver to please stop. And the guy says, like, I beg your pardon? Last time I checked, you're a prisoner. You just follow instructions. Al-Tarebbe says, I just want to make a, a little prayer. He says, yeah, yeah, that's fine. We're not stopping. And so a moment later, the boat stops. And the guy can't budge the boat. And he says to the Al-Tarebbe, okay, well, let's go back to the first request. What did you want? So I just want to make a little prayer. If you'll let me make a little prayer, everything will be fine. So the guy says, oh, he relents. And at that moment, the boat starts moving again. The man stops the boat. Al-Tarebbe does his little prayer, and then the boat continues. So the famous question the Rebbe asked many times, what was the point? I think actually this goes back to a, a talk of, of the free, previous Rebbe. What was the point? If the Alter Rebbe could stop the boat, just stop the boat and say, say a prayer. And if he could stop the boat, why did he stop the boat and it has to start again? And the answer is that a mitzvah has to be done by means of nature. Which on philosophically speaking means that the godliness which is engendered through a mitzvah is not supposed to shatter nature, but rather transform it. So if the boat would be stopped, if the, if the, if the, if the Kiddush HaChedesh would be recited uh, because, because the boat couldn't move, then it was just marshalling a miracle, which al Rebbe could do, but then he'd miss the point of doing a mitzvah right. The mitzvah's got to be done right. So the Rebbe suggests the same thing here happens. The, 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 the idea of God's miracles here in Purim is not that nature should be shattered. It was all within the realm of nature, which goes back to where we started with Rashi. Rashi introduces both ideas. The Rebbe doesn't go back to Rashi. I'm saying that. So, Nais, and at the same time, logical explanation. There's definitely miracles abounding here, but at the same time, it fits into this camouflage that we know as the Megillah, the story of the greatest miracle of all time that doesn't seem to be miraculous at all. And that's a little about the sixth chapter. We'll continue, Bezrat Hashem, to study in our next class. So that explains why Pesach is two days. It's really, it's, it's all